Hi, Robert. Hey, Ron. All right. So we're back for another riff, and we thought we'd uh, we'd go back to the topic we've talked about on and off uh, over the months, which is uh, uh, crypto and blockchain, and really try to try to um, do the basics. You know, what is it and how it works and so on. And and maybe the first question, I, you know, I I still have. I, I go hot and cold with crypto and, and blockchain, um, but that's, I think, mainly because I just haven't grasped, don't have a full understanding of it. Is What is it good for? It's good for gambling. Uh, we, we've definitely- <laughs> No question about thing, that. Yeah, there's one thing we know, it's good for gambling. As we speak, Bitcoin is back up to 24,000. So somebody's exactly. making money. Uh, and it's it's a, a much better game than you find in most places in Las Vegas. Uh, the house takes some, but not a lot. Uh, but that's that's not strictly speaking true because uh, over time there are more and more bitcoins being uh, being minted in order to compensate miners, and so the the real drag is the fact that you have to pay for the operation of the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And in theory, that the blockchain is incredibly efficient. Uh, and in practice, it's incredibly efficient in some ways, and it's incredibly uh, costly in others. You know, I've seen numbers that suggest that crypto is accounting for 1% of global electricity use. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's for gambling. Um, so, you know, 1% of global electricity use is a really big number. And uh, so it's maybe it's actually more expensive than Vegas. I don't know. So is that true of all cryptos or just a Bitcoin? Is mining a feature of every blockchain? Uh, yes, and not, not totally yes. So, you know, the original idea behind, uh, behind Bitcoin was based on providing security in what looks like a massively unsecure environment. You know, just there you have a accessible distributed, um, essentially ledger of, uh, of what has happened. And if and it's like Wikipedia, you know, people go to Wikipedia and they change things and other people have to change it back and you never quite know if it's right. And that works pretty well for Wikipedia, but 99% right doesn't work well in financial services. Yeah. And so it was designed in a way to, to make it very difficult to uh, falsify the ledger. It's almost as if, if you wanted to go in and mess around with Wikipedia, you would have to pay a, a large amount of money. And then of course, someone would change your entry back and, and fix it. Uh, I know this because my, my oldest daughter used to change entries for you at ARI and, and, and talk about you know the fact that you work with me and and, and someone within uh, 30 minutes at ARI would go and switch it back. back yeah so and she just did that because she was a teenager and fooling around but uh, it was it would have never happened if it had cost her a thousand dollars every time she wanted to do that and the way that Bitcoin is structured it's kind of like that if you want to mess around the blockchain in theory you could um, but it would be very expensive uh, it would be expensive to do it. It would be expensive to maintain it. And it would be costly implicitly because if you're involved in Bitcoin, uh, you have some interest in Bitcoin being successful. And the, the worst thing for Bitcoin success would be if the blockchain were compromised. So that model really works. Uh, it also is a little cumbersome. Uh, 
the cryptography is complex. That's a good thing. The, um, the mining is based on competition, uh, which is also a good thing, although it does lead to um, you know, literally thousands of duplicate trans duplicate calculations happening simultaneously. So if everyone's racing to mine the next block and get the reward of Bitcoins, then you have a lot of people who get 99% of the way there, 95% of the way there, 90% of the way there when someone else actually solves it mm -hmm. and those resources are wasted. Uh, you know, there's always this kind of waste in, in competition and to the extent that competition successfully advances your goals, it's usually definitely worthwhile. And in this case, that's the open question. So people are continuously looking at options for other types of blockchains that would be as secure and as robust as Bitcoin, but would be more efficient. So it wouldn't take 1% of electricity use and it wouldn't you know, have a, a practical speed limit of, I think I hear numbers like seven transactions per second, which mm -hmm. you know is, I don't know how many visa transactions per second there are in December. Millions of billions per second. I mean, it's it's the numbers are astounding, but there is this other layer on top of Bitcoin where you can't transact at a much faster speed. So yes. there's, there's the, the, the supposedly solutions, but they must be costly as well. Otherwise they would be ubiquitous. Well, they're all uncertain, right? Bitcoin is the one proven model. Um, and then when you start adding things to it um, so that you could do a lot of stuff uh, in a less expensive way and then maybe batch it on the, uh, onto the, the core Bitcoin mm -hmm. blockchain, then you introduce other potential weaknesses. And the, the primary one is security. I mean, we've seen this over and over when you have a bridge between two blockchains. Uh, that is a potential security weakness, and we see hundreds of millions of dollars worth of crypto being stolen on an ongoing basis yep. across these bridges. So there's always a trade-off. Um, one of the other things that people have, have sort of coalesced around is instead of uh, Bitcoin's approach, which is called proof of work, to have uh, proof of stake, where you only have one party doing the calculations, so you you reduce the amount of computational effort, the electricity draw mm -hmm. um, by uh, three or four orders of magnitude because someone is assigned randomly to do the calculation. Uh, and the way you get assigned is you basically put up a, a bond, they call it a stake. Mm -hmm. So if you want it to be the, uh, you're on and you wanted to be able to mine on the Yarn Book blockchain, you'd have to put up a bunch of Yarn coins. And those, those would have to be in some sort of um, account, you know, basically like a bond, they would be mm -hmm. available so that you are clearly invested in the success of the blockchain because you have this huge investment in it. You're holding all of these these coins. Ethereum is working on this. And the idea is if you, you know, put up a thousand ether, then you're probably not going to screw around and mess up the Ethereum blockchain because your ether might go to zero. Uh, and then you assign the calculation along with the reward to people um, randomly, but based on the size of their stake. So if, if you had 10,000 ether in your uh, stake account and I only had a thousand, you'd be you know, something like 10 times more likely to like, assign yeah. that. Uh, and so essentially you're being paid interest in, in on your stake along with for your calculations, but you can do the calculations in a more efficient, less energy intensive way.
So um, Bitcoin has been talked about as uh, for a long time, since the beginning, really, I think uh, Satoshi's manifesto presented it as an alternative to fiat currencies as the as, as money really bitcoin as money uh, but most of these other blockchains are not presenting themselves as the ultimate solution for money so what again what are they for so so uh kind of that's how they work and that's kind of the the the, the cost and the, the energy cost although i i did read an article somewhere somebody posted this that if you look at, and this is again from a Bitcoin money perspective, if you look at the at the electricity cost of money, right, of, of regular money, and you compare them, the electricity of an ATM, the electricity of shuffling large quantities of cash around, the uh, you know, the that you know, the money system as it exists today consumes more electricity than Bitcoin mining does. Um, and and that's probably true, but I don't think either one of us actually thinks Bitcoin is going to be money, certainly not anytime, uh, anytime in the next uh, few decades. So uh, that comparison is kind of is kind of irrelevant. Um, so so putting aside the use as money, um, okay, what else can we do with this, and how can the benefit that is resulted from this other stuff that we do with it justify these these costs and the energy and the the thought that is being put into all this is is the is the real value here. Well, we'll see. Uh, that's the beauty of these kind of things is we can speculate, but we'll actually find out. And it won't be what people think it is today, including us. It, it won't be uh, what the original Bitcoin manifesto was pointing at. You know, Bitcoin will have to evolve a lot if it's going to be even relevant in twenty years. That's just the way the world is. Um, if you want to stay relevant, you have to evolve and improve and, and continue to, to add value in excess of what alternatives might add. Uh, but all of crypto is sort of this massive experiment in how to lower frictions, how to lower what we would call transaction costs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, life is full of transaction costs. And if you can make people's interactions run more smoothly and efficiently, you're really creating value because then people can collaborate, they can cooperate, they can specialize way more than they could in the first place. So that was the whole point of currency in the first place, whether it's it's gold or seashells, it, it's, it doesn't really matter. When you have a currency, it represents essentially human effort. Yep. And it it really streamlines what would have, would have otherwise been barter. Uh, you know, it can, it can uh, make both barter in the moment more effective uh, and it can move things around in time. So it helps you start investing to create more wealth rather than just creating wealth by exchanging in the moment. And all of the, of the real value I can see in crypto follows that pattern. Even if Bitcoin were to become a global currency, you know, at the, the, the level of the current version at the level of electricity use and the um, limits on how many transactions can happen at any given moment. Uh, it doesn't seem like it adds any value compared to what we already have. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Bitcoin or some other crypto couldn't on its own. And this is already happening. I mean, in particular, for, in, if you look at areas where there are high there are high frictions uh, and it's particularly sending money to people in uh, other countries and sending money to people who are not part of the formal banking system. Mm -hmm. 
uh, it gets pretty expensive. If I want to send you money, I can do it basically for free. Um, actually, I can do it literally for free. Well, up, up, up to a certain amount, as we've discovered over yes. the years, <laughs> banks create, I mean, not banks, the regulations create all kinds of barriers for moving money around if it's above a certain amount. But yes, it's very, if you want to send a few hundred dollars, it's instantaneous and, uh, and at a zero cost. And that is a real value. I mean, that hasn't been the case for most of history where getting money to someone involved sending them a, a paper check, which in itself was a, an amazing innovation. Mm -hmm. So anything, if we think about it, anything that crypto can do to reduce the frictions of people interacting, of, of people collaborating, of people cooperating, uh, that is, that's going to be real value. That's what finance basically does is reduce those frictions. Uh, so where's it going to be value? Well, if we didn't have any currency and we were just all doing barter, then that would be a huge value. Sure. Given that we've got a pretty effective um, global currency system, uh, it's probably going to be elsewhere. So I would look elsewhere. There are those low hanging fruits, you know, the unbanked and the, the international um, transfers, but I would be looking at where there are much larger frictions. So some examples of that, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you know, crypto has dedicated a lot of energy to fintech and the idea of, of kind of disrupting the finance industry, uh, where there are a lot of intermediaries, where there's a lot of transaction costs, um, not just in terms of moving money around, but in terms of loans and, uh, and uh, allocation of distribution of capital, allocation of capital. I think that there's certainly a there's certainly room for improvement in the underwriting process. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, historically, loans have been done on a relationship basis, which is is a high friction. If you don't know someone, then it's very hard to come up with a really reasonable approach to how you're going to lend the money. And to the extent that crypto can change that um, and more globalize the lending process, that could be a real value. Now, I don't know how, exactly how that happens because most of crypto is keeping track of things rather than um, actually providing the data or the information that you would need. But it's certainly possible that smart contracts are a way to make, to connect places where there's excess capital. And, and on a macro sense, the US, for example, has excess capital. Japan has excess capital. Germany has excess capital. Any wealthy country has excess capital with places that have a dearth of capital in ways that are win-win. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard now. If you wanted to invest in uh, Africa right now, how would you go about doing that? It would be very costly or it would be very risky or both. And uh, if crypto could solve that, it would, that would be amazing. I don't exactly see how that is, but it, it's, that's the kind of area that would be interesting. And the other one that everyone talks about is you know, building a new internet on the blockchain so that it's not centralized in the way that web 2.0 became. So instead of having all your data on a, you know, in a database at Facebook, all your, all your data would be on a blockchain that you would have a lot more control over. And that could be really interesting. I don't see any evidence that people actually give a crap about privacy, right. um, but that, that's probably because people who do aren't on Facebook. Uh, and so people on Facebook don't care. 
And I think part of being on Facebook is that you don't care because you're willing to share stuff that you, you know, often boggles my mind that people are willing to share it. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it strikes me that if, um, that there is this incredible opportunity if people value privacy to create something alternative on the blockchain uh, where you own your data and can decide how to use it. So right now you put your data out there and it's sold to advertisers and you, you can see it, right? I'm, I'm in Google, I'm doing a search in Google and I get an ad on Facebook relating to the search I did in Google. I mean, they're, they're, it's across all these platforms and my data is just floating out there and people know exactly what I've done, not maybe as an individual, but certainly as a, as a, as a search a searcher or as a, as a participant. Blockchain has the potential for you to gain control over that. Although I'm sure you have to, I'm sure you give up something in order to do that. Uh, and it's, I'm not sure what the trade-offs are, but I have a sense that there is a trade-off and that I'm not sure people in the kind of numbers that participate in Facebook are willing to engage in that trade-off. I would be really interested to see how that. I, I will be really interested to see how that evolves. If if people, you know, put the effort into going in the direction of having more personalized control of data, because uh, in addition to there not being any evidence that that people care that much, uh, there's also transaction costs. There are frictions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I in an ideal world, I would have some kind of um, you know, admin that would be you know, in virtual most likely, but that would be making these kind of decisions for me. So I'm not ongoingly trying to decide whether I want people who sell, you know, tropical vacations to know that I like going to the tropics because right now I'm not interested in going to the tropics. So uh, I don't want to be bombarded with those ads. And, but I don't want, I also don't want to sit down every morning and say, well, what am I interested in looking at? Well, but you might if it was monetized. And that's the other interesting aspect of it is, is if you owned your own data and you could participate in certain databases uh, based on certain preferences and get paid for it, instead of Google getting the money uh, for the advertising, you get at least a portion of the money um, for allowing your data to be used that way. And I think that's ultimately the incentive, but it, it is going to require some it's going to require more effort. It's going to require you to think about who do you want and how much and, and whether people are willing, uh, it, it, whether it's lucrative enough to get people incentivized in mass. Because again, none of this works in small numbers, right? The whole beauty of this is it has to be hundreds of millions. Um, I mean, I know Twitter is working on something or the founder of Twitter was working on something. I don't know if they still are. I know there are others that are trying to work uh, to create social media platforms on the blockchain i think it's going to be fascinating to see if uh if any of them take off and that's why i think you need ai because otherwise having it actually the decisions actually be at the individual level which is would be super cool it's just there's too much friction it's too burdensome yeah. and what you would see is um some sort of amalgamation into a few relatively trusted intermediaries that would essentially rebate you. I mean, when mm -hmm. I see people write about, oh, transaction costs are so high because credit cards charge this much, but then you look at your experience, you go, yes, uh, I'm definitely paying for the you know 1.85% that the merchant is being charged, mm -hmm. but I get 1.5% back yeah. uh, as a rebate. Uh, 
and I don't decide and nobody's doing bidding and I don't have to, I just sign up with one company who says, here's the rebate I'll give you. And I expect that we would see that in advertising if, if we got to a point where it was actually opt-in. Uh, is that there would be an incentive to opt in and people would make their own decisions, but it would be uh, across three or four or five different sort of offers uh, that you get just like with a credit card and some people would choose to not share any data and, and not get any uh, benefit from that or and some people would be like, you know, here's it all and maximize their benefit. So what is it about blockchain technology that makes that possible that in a sense couldn't exist or would be much more expensive or much harder uh, on the normal internet? Uh, because, it, and it's really hard to wrap your brain around this. I found it difficult when I've taught this in class, um, people, you could see their heads starting to explode yeah. because you have to give up everything that you know about how these things are structured. So you think, okay, advertising. So, you know, it's, there's somebody, Google, who is, uh, automatically, but in, they're accountable for and incentivized to, to handle the matching of advertisers and searchers. And when you get into a blockchain environment, that intermediary, that centralized entity goes away. And what you have is an algorithm that can evolve, but is not controlled by any individual entity that is sort of mutually owned by all of the users of that particular blockchain. And that algorithm is then, you know, with inputs from you is then in charge of all of the things that happen. And it's not that different than Google's AdSense, which is an algorithm that matches yep. and, and allows for bidding. You could build that inside of something without any Google being involved, but it's hard to imagine how it happens. But that is really what the upside of the blockchain is, is that you can accomplish all of the magic that these, these leading companies have accomplished. And it really is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, but you could accomplish it in a distributed, self-organized way that doesn't involve those companies that we so strongly relate to the outcome. So there's no Steve Jobs. You know, there, there is an original you know, someone who got the Apple blockchain rolling, and then you end up with Apple. So it's how do they get compensated? So how do they, how do they get incentivized and rewarded for actually creating the algorithms? Because the algorithms don't create themselves, at least not initially. And that is, that is where it, it'll be interesting to see where we can go, particularly given securities regulation, because mm -hmm. the obvious way to do it is to create a cryptocurrency and that is going to be used on the blockchain and have a, a chunk of that going to the people who make the biggest contributions. So Steve Jobs starts out with a billion Apple coins mm -hmm. or when, um, when Elon Musk comes in and gets involved in Tesla, he gets a billion Tesla coins. Now, certainly the, these key entrepreneurs would almost certainly, because, you know, Elon Musk made a lot more money than Steve Jobs ever did, yep. uh, but they would end up with less money. And I'm not sure that, that you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, because it probably depends on the case. Um, certainly, we're probably going to get to outer space um, sooner because Elon Musk got rich on Tesla, which is because he got rich, rich, 
rich on PayPal, which is because he got rich, rich on his first uh, or whatever it was. Yeah. Oh, there was uh, the yellow yeah. books. It was basically yellow, yellow pages online. Um, and and so I, I don't have a an idea of whether this is good or bad, but it's just a fact that you would distribute the rewards, uh, the benefits, the value being created on the blockchain. Uh, almost certainly they would be distributed more uh, widely mm -hmm. than just you know, being concerned with the founders and the early investors. Uh, and so the incentive might not be as big, but I'm not sure that, uh, that when you get to that level that incentives are really what, what matter. I think that having uh, lower frictions, making it easier for people to find each other, to collaborate, to, to exchange ideas, to learn what other people have done and, and from their mistakes and from their successes is probably much more important. So it strikes me that both for this case and for the fintech example, AI is crucial because AI is what, you know, since you don't have a person deciding if a loan is a good loan or not, it, 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 there has to be some mechanism to make those kind of decisions and you that, that some kind of automated mechanism has to exist to make decisions. Well, most of the, the platform, the platforms I'm aware of are opt-in, right? So it, a loan happens if you decide to lend me money. Mm -hmm. And what the blockchain does is it handles all of the details. Um, but yeah, if you really want that to be big, then you need to have some access to the data that's required as well as algorithms that will will help you make that decision. If you're just yeah. flying by the seat of your pants, it's probably not gonna go well. Um, but if there's a sophisticated evolving algorithm that it really gives you an accurate picture of the profile of the loan or is reliable to price the loan appropriately so that if you know, you're looking to make 12%, you just you know you're gonna be taking a, a pretty precise level of risk because it's a high return versus someone who's willing to take 6% is, is and if, if you can get that automated, then you have a huge win. And we're seeing more and more of that, not on the blockchain, but in financial services themselves. I mean, at this point, I would argue that uh, algorithmic lending for you know, fairly uh, homogeneous loans, things like home mortgages for sure, is better. It does a better job than the traditional banking approach of, you know, talking to the customer and getting a sense of their character. And, you know, the things that bankers were doing 50 and 100 years ago, they have value, but large data uh, analysis has even more value. Yep. And, and it seems like that's, that's growing and become more dominant uh, over time. Do we, do we know of any successful, um, fintech that's based on a blockchain that is sitting on a blockchain uh well i mean you could definitely argue bitcoin is successful yep. but but no i clear that it's fintech though yeah. uh, it is yet to be it is yet to be proven as the the way of the future and it's probably because um if if you centralize the blockchain, you know, people are talking about moving things out of the blockchain within mm -hmm. JP Morgan or with a dollar coin out of the Fed. Uh, if, if it's a centralized blockchain, it's sort of, it's like an oxymoron. Um, yep. And 
and as long as you have an institution involved, you cannot expect to see the full embrace of decentralization. I mean, Google has no interest and, and shouldn't have an interest yeah. in uh, killing off their business model for by by giving everyone control of their own data and the tools that they need in order to monetize the their attention online. All right, so I'm sure there's a lot more to talk about in terms of the uses of um, of uh, crypto and the blockchain, but we'll do that next time or the time after that. We'll, we'll catch up on this topic. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Ron. Good to see you. See you next week.